0: Welcome to the very first episode of the Shaping Futures podcast.
1: This is so exciting. <laughs>
0: hey, Millie, how are you going?
1: I'm doing well, thank you. Awesome. Now, I understand that you will be having a conversation with some very interesting women. Can you tell me more about who you're talking to?
0: I am so excited to be speaking today to three incredible leaders who have all grown up here in Adelaide and are making changes on an international scale. So we have Isabel Marshall, who was the Young Australian of the Year in 2020. Isabel is celebrated for co-founding the social enterprise Taboo with Eloise Hall. Taboo is working to end period poverty, donating 100% of their net profits to the cause. And Izzy is also completing her medical degree at the University of Adelaide. Ophelia Valudos is our next panellist and she is a lawyer at Cal Clark, working in the corporate and commercial team. Much of Ophelia's work is in helping businesses comply with their modern slavery obligations. Ophelia is also the health and education officer at Taboo and host of Taboo's podcast, In the Flow. Our final panellist is Thanu Harath. Thanu is the CEO of Oak Tree, a youth-run international development agency. Like Izzy, Thanu is also studying on top of all of this, completing her Juris Doctor at the University of Melbourne. Oh, and Thanu is also a Global Shaper at the Melbourne Hub. Yeah, so what are you going to be talking to them about today, Theo? Well, today I want to ask our leaders how they're able to affect global change, but from local bases. I'm interested to hear what they think of the word Poverty and of what advice they'd give to other young leaders that are interested in contributing to this space.
1: Wow, some big questions right there. I can't wait to hear this conversation. I think it's going to be a really good one. Before we get started, we want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on Kaurna land and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that sovereignty
0: was never ceded and we'd like to invite you to pay respects to the First Nations people on whose land you are listening from today. We'd also like to note to our listeners in advance that this conversation will discuss modern slavery. In the show notes, you'll find the contact details for the Australian Federal Police and Lifeline if you have any concerns relating to this issue. Welcome Izzy, Thanu and Ophelia. It's so lovely to have you all here. I'm going to dive right into our first question, which is admittedly pretty broad, but I, I want to pull at a thread that I think runs through all of your work. I'm really interested in what the word poverty means to you. It's a word that has so many definitions and so many different ways of measuring it, but I know that it's really significant in your organisations and social enterprises. So maybe Izzy can kick us off by okay. talking about how poverty shapes the work that you do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, poverty is a very complex idea and concept. Um, I mean, in its essence, you kind of think of someone who doesn't have access or can't afford the things that they need to live a healthy and good life to the best of their ability. Um, but what I've discovered and I guess learned over the last few years is um, is that the factors contributing to poverty are so complex um, and don't just rely on finances. Um, And that poverty exists in Australia as well. And I think that point about finances really rings true, particularly in Australia where we have these structures that are very supportive, like we're so lucky, um, and us working in spaces that um, have a strong focus on for purpose is a privilege in itself like so many people have to work really really hard in jobs that they don't like just to keep themselves out of poverty so it's a privilege to be in this space but um in Australia it the level of support that we have financially and the access to services that we have um but then this the maintaining levels of poverty that we have really do show that it's not just a financial situation there's there's it's very psychological it's Mm. physical it's intergenerational like it's there's so many factors so it's a very hard topic to pull apart and I guess find solutions to.
0: Tell us a bit about period poverty and what that means for Taboo's mission. Yeah
2: period poverty is a quite a new term um, and it's interesting, like you, you liken it to a lack of, say, food or water. You don't really hear the word food poverty or water poverty. Um, but period poverty is quite complex in itself as well. It's when someone doesn't have access to or can't afford the period products they need to do with their period well or in a dignified, hygienic manner. Uh, but broader than that, it's about access to services. It's about access to infrastructure, um, hygienic locations to deal with periods, about access to education around periods, menstrual health care. Um, so it's a broad, encompassing term and it relates to this new definition of menstrual health, which is also a very broad and encompassing term around access to all of those things, not just the period products. <laughs> so,
0: then you, I know that Oak Tree has used the word poverty in previous mission statements and it has been a guiding force for the organisation in the past, but how does it influence your vision now for the organisation and are there any complications in using a term like that? Mm, that's such a good question, Theo, and I'll probably start by saying that poverty is really
3: real, like it Mm. is a very real thing that has very real effects on people around the world. I think The Who came out just a couple of days ago saying that over the course of the pandemic, so over the last two years, extreme poverty, people living in extreme poverty has actually increased by half a billion. That essentially wipes out all the progress that we have made to fight extreme poverty over the last decade, like all gone in two years. Incredible. And I think that highlights how real that actually is but just as Izzy was saying before poverty is so much bigger than just needing more finances or needing um, you know food or water it is so complex and so intertwined with so many systemic issues around the world and that is the change that has happened in Oak Tree recently to sort of realise that and realise that just fixing a problem by throwing money at it or even just giving food or water or like one sort of solution to poverty doesn't solve this inherent systemic issue that people are facing. And I think what we've also seen by so many people being like fallen back into poverty poverty over the last couple of years is that what we have done in the past isn't working. We need to look at these... More inherent causes of poverty and address them first. So, what we've done at Oak Tree is focusing on one of those systemic causes, and that is youth disempowerment. Um, so, poverty is a symptom of that greater injustice of youth disempowerment. And what we do is we empower young people to lead, to like demand and create like the changes that they want to see in their communities, no matter what that change is. And with that, we hope that they will then change the governments, change the policy, change the systems that create these economic inequalities in the first place.
2: And that is awesome. Can I just jump in to say that, like, the youth have so much energy and creativity Mm. around this as well. Like, they haven't lived in those structures that have served, I guess, poverty flourishing for so long. Absolutely. And so they see it with such fresh eyes and giving them the agency and the encouragement to actually take that creativity and freshness and turn it into change is, like,
3: actually so sustainable and awesome work. (laughs) (laughs) No, and it's so interlinked with everything else, like, period poverty as well and climate change and corruption. Like, if we get young people in decision-making spaces, just imagine what we can achieve, like having those biggest stakeholders in the room. Um, So, really, that's what we're focusing on going forward. Um, And I think it also helps with this idea of decolonizing this concept of poverty, I think. like, Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, I think there's this concept of poverty poverty porn. Not Mm -hmm. sure if anyone has heard of that before. Mm -hmm. Um, So, poverty porn is this idea that we as, like, a Western society really almost thrive and like feel like we're we're saving these people that are in these communities um and that saviour yeah a little bit of that white saviour complex but it's not just not just white people just like anyone in a more privileged situation um that's why all these charities have for so long spoken with that big-eyed child poverty porn is putting someone in a very disempowered position and framing them as someone who needs protection Mm. but really these people don't need protection they need empowerment like the economic systems that were created mostly by western countries and by the effects of colonization have in fact actually put these people into poverty in the first place so they don't need our protection they Mm. need our empowerment and support in that way um and that's also what we're doing with oak tree at the moment Geez, poverty
4: porn is such a good term for it though that hits the nail on the head
3: what do you think about that like
4: do you feel like it's confronting but just perfect
2: yeah I feel like it's almost satisfying that sense of guilt that we all innately have because we know that there's injustice yeah and so that's a quick band-aid fix like Mm. I'll donate the Mm. 20 bucks or I'll give someone a goat for Christmas
0: yeah (laughs) and
3: and they're beautiful sentiments and like and that's the thing the sentiment should never be lost yeah that help is still very much needed Mm. I think it's just the way we frame the help yeah Mm
0: -hmm. yeah Ophelia, I think this is also a really good segue to discuss what you're doing at Cal Clark. Ophelia, in addition to being the incredible host of the In The Flow podcast, that's Taboo's podcast, uh, you're also a lawyer and you're working on modern slavery compliance. Can you introduce this term first and then tell us how the work you're doing is addressing some of these global inequalities?
4: Yeah, so I guess it's just going back to like your previous question about poverty, it's funny that my... My work doesn't necessarily have poverty at the forefront or like as the driving factor of what we do, but it's a huge indicator. So modern slavery is essentially the most serious form of exploitation by one human to another. So whether that's um, serious child labour, forced labour, forced marriage, debt bondage restricting someone's freedoms. So, often you'll see like someone's not allowed to, their passports get taken away when they sign on to be an employee. So, essentially my role is to work alongside businesses who um, have these global supply chains um, and are trying to figure out how they can make them more transparent um, but also comply with their now legal obligation which it was in 2019 the Modern Slavery Act was introduced which puts an onus on big business essentially so you have to have a revenue of above 100 million dollars a year to create a statement every year which uh, essentially covers all of the actions that you're taking to address modern slavery in your operations and your supply chains and also talk about the effectiveness of your actions and also be really honest about where there are gaps in your business it's not even it's funny a lot of people think that they can't put their hand up and say oh, we have a really dodgy supplier here or we get our um, some of our products from North Korea. And, you know, obviously that's not ideal. But the statement, by sa- putting that in your statement, it doesn't mean you're going to jail. It's actually good that you're finding things because hopefully it empowers you to look elsewhere. Yeah, a lot of the work we do um, is assessing Uh, whether it's questionnaires we receive from suppliers or doing site audits and just kind of see whether there are some indicators of further investigations needed. So for example, uh, depending on the location of a supplier, let's say, we look at the poverty rate there because poverty is a huge issue and a huge vulnerability factor for um, victims of modern slavery or low education rates or civil unrest. So it's funny how so many of those factors as well play into whether poverty is going to um, be prevalent in an area so yeah all kind of mixes together.
0: What do you think the word modern being in that term like before slavery what do you think that does to the way that we understand that now why is that important as compared to saying slavery is it something Mm. to do with the fact that we conceptually figure slavery is something that happened and isn't still happening?
4: Yeah, I think that, uh, I know that at least when I think of the word slavery and I think this is quite common that people think of, you know, slave trade and some mm-hmm. really archaic forms of slavery um, and I guess by putting the word modern in front of it kind of brings it back into this century. Um, but it's, uh, in another way as well, a lot of the businesses or the the industries that off of modern slavery are often ones that have been developed quite recently or that are for example fast fashion like mm-hmm. you know fast fashion didn't exist in the 1800s but now it is a huge problem and it's putting a lot of people in some really vulnerable situations so I guess it kind of uh, takes that historical factor out of it and brings it into more of a current context for people to go, whoa, this is actually happening right now. Wow. Yeah. Can
3: I ask like, what the actual definition for modern slavery is? Do you know? Is it actually that people aren't paid or is it paid less? No,
4: than so payment actually doesn't really come, into, doesn't it. come into it. Um, again, it's an indicator. So if we saw that people were being underpaid, we'd go, hold on, something's not looking right here. Yep. But it, they include the term serious in the definition because they want to make sure that this isn't just – you know a dodgy boss not treating his employees properly that it's that really extreme form of people suffering because of what's happening gotcha. not to say that underpayment doesn't cause people to suffer but it just doesn't come under that umbrella so that's why it's more of those situations where you are highly restricted but pretty much you're under the will of your employer or whoever in these. because a lot of the time it's even families um mm-hmm. where it's happening it's it's got like an octopus, it's got tentacles yeah. going everywhere. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know that piece of legislation that you mentioned is—is is that at the state level
4: um, or the Commonwealth? That is a Commonwealth. It's a federal legislation. Um, there have been a few states that have tried to create their own. For example, New South Wales drafted one. They actually drafted it before the Commonwealth one, um, which also imposed penalties for on companies who weren't reporting because the current legislation doesn't have that. And it also lowered the revenue thresholds, which would mean that so many more companies would have to report. But that still hasn't been brought in. And I think that it's kind of a lot of those more meaty bits of the legislation are actually being taken out. So it's a bit of a watch this space. I guess that's why it's so interesting to work in um, because it's very dynamic. You have to always be on your toes because you actually don't know what's going to happen. But there's also... There are international legislations on it. Like in the UK, they were one of the first countries that had a Modern Slavery Act, Um, but theirs is quite watered down actually compared to Australia's. So it's really good to see that we're kind of leading the way here. That's a first. That's Mm. great to hear. Yeah.
0: I'm going to zoom out a little bit because something that really drives the Global Shapers movement, both here at the Adelaide Hub and uh, internationally, is the idea that we can really affect global change from local basis. And that's something that I really admire about what you're all doing. But it's not really easy to understand or visualise the interplay between these different scales of location between the local and the global and how they impact one another. So I'll start with Thenu. Why is it important that Oak Tree has both international and local touch points or outreaches?
3: Yeah, no, that's such a great question. Um, I think for any big international global change to happen, it involves grassroots efforts and it involves many different people from around the world getting together over this one cause, and for us having that domestic touch point of having Australian volunteers who come and like give their time to support the cause to support our initiatives, actually allows that grassroots movement to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and like youth empowerment is not just in Australia; it's not a movement that is just bound to Australia. It's everywhere around the world, and it's a huge movement that is growing, getting young people into these spaces of decisions. Really, and to have that local touch point is us standing in solidarity really with all those other young people. So we work completely in solidarity on the same level with young people in Timor-Leste, in Cambodia, in Fiji, in Sri Lanka, in Nepal, in our new projects. Um, And the whole point is to create that grassroots movement that expands globally.
0: Izzy, at Taboo, I know you also have both local and international outreach. How do they affect one another? Do they respond to one another? Um, And how do you approach working with with both of them, mm.
2: so the growth at Taboo um, was very much local and grassroots based, um, and I think for us that just came down to human like psychology. Like it's the people you're connected with, and the people you you have an emotional response to, and you see people, and you all got the same mission. Like there's an energy in that, and so we we started Taboo in Adelaide, and um, we we raised our startup capital through a crowdfunding campaign. That was a very community a large community effort and that was because we spent a lot of time at market stalls and um, on social media various events and um, speaking at schools and that face-to-face interaction particularly on such personal topics and um, the people we were speaking to had their period we had our we had our periods and we were talking about periods on a very global perspective but I think the nature of what we were doing being such a personal topic was particularly powerful in such a community-based, I guess, scale. But then um, when it comes to Taboo's impact, it's very much um, global and local. Uh, We have 100% of our net profits are dedicated to our charity partner, One And one girl works in Sierra Leone and Uganda and we wanted to focus our profits in those spaces because for a lot of countries, particularly developing countries, a person who bleeds their period will stop them from going to school. So about 30% of of girls in developing countries will drop out of school as soon as they get their period. And that isn't to say that period poverty just exists overseas, it's just that that's an extreme impact of period poverty. It certainly exists in Australia as well. And, And so quite soon into our journey we discovered that there are certainly young people in Australia very close to home who are having their education, their employment, their community, social engagement, I guess impacted by the fact that they have this monthly cycle that happens to be a biological process that is incredibly vital for the continuation of us as humans Um, and it's something to be to be proud of it's a sign of strength and it's a sign um, of you know your body having this capacity to do an amazing thing and so the fact that that was acting as a barrier for so many people whether that be internationally or in Australia like right in our back garden made us feel pretty yeah feel pretty crap about the state of the world but also very very grateful for the opportunities that we had had um our periods never stopped us from going to school well they may have you know you have a bad day and you have to not do your swimming lesson or something there's a huge huge spectrum on how how periods affect us but that systemic um because with the systemic effect of periods and the lack of structural support social support um which is fueled by stigma as well so that um the lack of comfortable conversations around periods and empowering conversations around periods i guess that made us um yeah i really want to focus on an international and a local
3: impact but grown from from the local did you side. get any pushback from people here about focusing on interna- international stuff when there was so much need here and did anyone push you to just focus on here
2: yeah, really good question. Um we I would say this has been such a learning journey and we as very privileged people Eloise and I um my co-founder and I had um hadn't hadn't been exposed to period poverty in Australia. And so when we started communicating through our crowdfunding campaign, but also through our general school presentations. When we started like promoting Taboo as a social enterprise and sharing our story and our mission, it was very much overseas based. And it was pretty quick that people started, not in an accusing way or anything, but, you know, they just ask like, what's the state of like this issue in Australia? Or is this an issue in Australia? And then you start researching. Mm -hmm. And honestly, there wasn't much out there about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Not until quite recently when um, amazing people ...people like Helen Connolly, the Commissioner for Children and Young People in South Australia. Um, so she's like the voice between young people and policy makers in South Australia. So her job is to to engage with the students, whether that be through, through surveys, through one-on-one consultations... And then relay all of that information to the decision makers. And what she found was that all the young people in South Australia were saying that they wanted to do something about poverty. And she was like, okay, that's interesting. Like, let's look at, like you were saying, like the markers of poverty. Like, what are those factors? Um, what plays into it? And a lot of the young people were saying, like, my period affects, like, mm-hmm. my well, it's it's a financial burden for my family. That's mm-hmm. the first thing. But it's also that um the lack of education or employment opportunities. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So then we started just looking into it and didn't find much. But um, over the years, there's been more coming out of the woodwork. And now we've developed this um, Pad It Forward program, which allows our customers in Australia who might subscribe for themselves to um, add on like a, a box for someone else in Australia who needs it. So this is a specific, a, an Australia specific program. It's like a pay it forward. So we call it Pad It Forward. That's <laughs> so
3: awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the reason that I asked is that I often get asked the question, why are you working in international development? like when there is so much need right here. And there is so much need right here. Um, But I think it really takes that lens of being a global citizen Mm -hmm. and knowing that just because there are also people suffering here and need the support here doesn't mean that there's someone somewhere else also needing that support. Mm -hmm. Like our main projects work with young people supporting their movements, um, giving seed funding to them for their social impact ideas across the Asia-Pacific. And while there are so many young people here as well that could benefit from that i think there are other organizations out there doing that um and it doesn't mean we can forget about everyone else if we really want to be those global citizens too
2: i so agree yeah. and we can learn so much from those people as well and it, again it's taking that that's taking it from the stance of stance stance of like um you are like this poor young person I need to help to like we can learn from you as well like you have so much to
3: give like our community as well that like intercultural absolutely that mutual aid approach yeah I think that goes so far in distributing that power as well like understanding that we don't know any more than a lot of those young people there. Like, yeah. I, like Oak trees or all people under 27. We don't know a lot of things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I am okay to admit that because yeah. we don't. Um, and for us to then decide what's going to happen in Cambodia or Timor-Leste is ridiculous because they're the experts in their own lives. Um, and mm-hmm. so the way that we can just push them up and give them the power, um, I think is like the way forward and the way we're trying mm. to do things.
0: I'm going to move to bring in Ophelia. Um, and I, I want to pick up on something that, Was that you were speaking about earlier and that was the complexity of these convoluted supply chains that we have and how in your work that brings in this kind of international dimension, even though you're working here in Adelaide with a local or a national law firm, (laughs) Cal Clark. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I cut
4: out all these bad jokes. Streamline it, don't worry. Um,
0: Where was I? Yeah, so where where are most of your clients based and mm. how does the nature of modern uh, supply chains uh, affect kind of where you can trace issues and who you're actually dealing with?
3: Mm. Um,
4: a lot of our clients are um, – actually, sorry, all of them are Australia-based, but they're not just from South Australia. We've got some um, from around the country and they're from a range of sectors, like uh, – you've got your fashion and then you've also got construction, aged care. There's a real broad spectrum that we have, which is great because when you're dealing with an issue like this, you can't apply a band aid approach to all of them. Um, you know, the level of raw materials involved in construction would be different from what's involved in fashion. So um, we just have to always make sure whatever we're doing is actually applicable to our clients. So it's um, – it's interesting to see as well how different each of their supply chains are. So um, a, majority, a majority of them have, um, oh, actually I would say it's, it's, it's an interesting split of those who have predominantly Australian based suppliers and then those who get supplies from overseas. And it's funny because at first you think, oh, wow, like you have 99% of your suppliers based in South Australia or Australia and that's awesome. And then you go, okay, but that's your, tier one suppliers. So that we refer to the like different levels of the supply chain as tiers. So your tier one suppliers, are, you know, let's say for example, I'm going to take pads. You go to a supplier and you say, can you make pads? They say, yep, we'll make you pads. So they make the pads, but then where does the cotton from the pads come from? Who picked it? Who put it together? Then you've got like the packaging where did the packaging come from where did you get like did it assemble in one supplier but then they got the cardboard from another supplier who got like it's it can be intimidating how deep these supply chains go Um, especially when you're getting into things like you know household appliances for example like those supply chains are crazy and it's it's hard to think that you will – sometimes it's ve- it's really daunting to think like, wow, we, are, we need to somehow get to the bottom of this. But it also makes you realise that even though I'm just one person, I'm one consumer, I actually have such a big impact internationally, like, like you're saying, being a global citizen. Mm, so it sounds like the work you're doing is touching on or trying to grapple with the complexity of the current –
0: globalised moment mm-hmm. where everyone's you know uh, intertwined and to be a global citizen we don't have to start our own NGOs or whatever we can just go to the supermarket and try and buy something and you're entangled in this huge web of of actors and yeah it's it, it's at once really empowering as you said but it can also feel a little bit overwhelming and disempowering at the oh. same time
4: well it's really interesting as well that a lot of the clients that are coming to us are saying uh we wanting to do this because like we're wanting to do obviously comply legally but we're getting the push from our consumers they're asking where are your products coming from they're asking what are what is our stance on modern slavery and human rights in general you know and a bribery and corruption like you were talking about before that plays a big impact in it mm. and and people are asking questions now we're really um lucky to be a generation that does have access to all of this information and it can really be used to our advantage to sway the activities of businesses because really they're the ones playing a huge impact in these people's lives. Mm, totally
2: you're right that access to information right now is so important as well and how like social media plays into that as well like I learned so much from my Instagram feed Mm. and of course you you want to cross check and like reference it and all of that sort of stuff but just being able to like dm your favorite fashion brand it's actually Mm. a bit wild like we have Mm -hmm. access to people and to ask the questions and to read the information which is really empowering Mm.
4: there's information out there we just have to look for it
3: Yeah, and I think there's also a huge amount of power in that consumer, like you were talking Mm. about before, Ophelia. Like, I think it was really that shift in climate change um, discourse, really, with that recent, like, was it the Business Council that changed its approach on, like, what climate change, like, the the impact of climate change in Australia, and that's what made the government follow. Mm. Um, I think, like, more than we know, we have that power by just making a choice at the supermarket, which is huge. That's such a great reminder of our power.
0: But you're also working with some bigger fish like our government and big institutions and I'd love to hear what you think government could be doing to better support the work that you're doing kind of changes do you want to see (laughs) sorry I just like I remember this time we were meeting with the
3: assistant minister for youth um and like we were expressing like all our concerns with like a lack of efficient like aid funding and like not enough impact on climate change and things like that and he was like my biggest concern is that young people are just a bit too worried like they're just anxious all the time I want to like ease these anxieties and want to make sure that they like think that they're going to have a good future like I think there's too much worry here and we're like, you know what would
0: stop us worrying?
3: <laughs> Knowing that we're going to have a world in 50 years' time. That would make us stop worrying. Yeah. And that's what you can do. The eye-opening
0: moment. How did you <laughs> respond
3: to <laughs> that? Were you just like,
2: I was
4: like okay. It's okay. <laughs> like
2: when someone's really <laughs> anxious and you're like, stop
3: being anxious.
1: And they're yeah. like, Stuff they're you. <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you
4: fixed
3: it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so I, I guess first to answer your question, listen, listen. And there are so many people out there who know what to do. The answers are out there. We just need to listen and we need the government to listen to us.
2: Yeah, I've just um, joined the Premier's Council for Women in SA and um, the focus is promoting and trying to instigate this big new strategy called um, Women's Financial Security and in, in Leadership. And um, that is a preventative measure um, for domestic violence. So, Pretty much it's a big topic and it's like one in four women in South Australia experience domestic violence. It's a huge issue and it's um, something that requires a lot of action and this st- strategy is fantastic. Like there's so many resources poured into it and there are so many good people as well along the line that are working for the state government that want to see these things make a change. Um, but it's just such a complex as you said, Theo, like a tangle of webs, like actually putting this from paper in and instigating it into businesses and community mm. groups and That's all so the players and making it a streamlined process where everyone's getting the same like communication and materials and resources to actually instigate these big strategies it seems like an impossible task and i didn't understand the concept of red tape until like this experience um i thought it was just a term adults use to like sound like <laughs> adulty and stuff and like <laughs> oh, some of them do yeah <laughs> Yeah, now I'm that person. <laughs> no, nah, but um, there is a lot of ho- there are a lot of hoops to jump through, and it really does feel daunting and like intimidating. Like, there's the world is so complex. There are so many people moving around. There's so many groups and different different agendas. Like. Yeah. That, yeah, that's why I love the social enterprise model. Though <laughs> I'm gonna plug that right now. So yeah, this is how we um try to make sustainable change and kind of bridge the gap between the world's richest and the world's poorest. Really, um, it's this instigating this idea of a social enterprise where you're um providing a top a product or a service that is already in high demand that people are already pouring millions and millions of dollars into products like pads and tampons, but we um because of our the way our business is structured, we will never take dividended profit will never take a net profit for the you know people at the top like a lot of businesses or companies are structured and instead that money will be invested into programs and projects that make sure people don't experience period poverty and the amazing thing about social enterprises is that you're not asking anyone to do anything Mm -hmm. they wouldn't otherwise do you're not rattling the tin with a sad face of a sad young person in somewhere else in the world um, and trying to tug on all of those like guilt complexes or or white Saviour complexes. Um, it's just a way to shuffle the money from where it is in concentration in some parts of the world and just filter it out so everyone benefits from this, I guess, structure that this consumerist structure that we've created and that we now rely upon.
3: It's such a cool model. Like, I genuinely think it is the future. Like, imagine yeah. if all organizations or companies became like that mm. The best and fastest way I think we yeah. can redistribute that so
2: if governments support social enterprises the social enterprises are doing the work for them mm. they just need to like provide the the financial like legal structures for social enterprises to exist in a really sustainable um an easy way because mm. it's very complex right now we're in like this gray area between mm. a charity and a and a for-profit company and so you've got a jump through hoops to make your taxes work and all the annoying legalities within all of it um yeah so would suggest the government back social enterprises mm.
0: is that gray area there because uh the notion of a social enterprise is new yeah. and emerging exactly yeah so like
2: the legal structures of a business right now or a charity um they like I feel you'll probably know way more about this I've just been learning on the go but um they just don't facilitate all the nuances of a social enterprise well and they like for example tax like we are we don't have like we're not a charity because our prime business activity well, our prime activities are to sell a product and that just doesn't happen very well within a charity structure because there's so many audits to do and there's so many other things especially when you're new and you sometimes can't actually pay for a lot of those Mm. things that you need to do as a charity so then you're a company but at the end of financial year if you've got like a bit of profit that you want to do something good with you're going to be taxed on it like Mm -hmm. there's all of those like complexities and and logistical nightmares involved with existing in this gray area between a charity and uh, um and a company
3: and I think the law doesn't catch up fast enough. I could be oh interested God, to no. hear what you have yeah. to say about that, feeling. But I was, in, yeah, I went to a webinar yesterday about a change in law recently about the public benevolent. Institution yeah. status. Um, so Global Citizen um, is an organisation based in New York and our founder at Oaktree is actually now the CEO there. And they lodged a case against the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission to say that advocacy should count as a charitable purpose and should These be so in the public... Yeah, right. no benevolent institution definition. And so they actually won that case. And now an that that's primary activity is advocacy can like, qualify for DGR, so tax-deductible status, which is awesome. But it has taken years and years of campaigning to get that to happen. And we already know, we've known for years that advocacy is, like, the best way to Mm. make change on Mm. these issues. Like, simple, like, donations from NGOs can only go so far. Mm. You need governments to increase aid budgets, to increase, like, social policy and things like that. But it was only last month that that's Mm. actually reflected in law. So...
4: Yeah, it's or just oh, who, the law it? is a slow-moving beast. <laughs> 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 Honestly, it's and and you know it, not just in this space, but like in cybersecurity and tech and and so many and areas moon and like space law, space law. Like mm. we have no idea, yeah. and it's um, often it takes something happening bad happening first before yeah. the law goes, oh, maybe we need to <laughs> focus Change on this. I'm going to jump in on what. I think we need from governments because it kind of goes in nicely. The government needs to support businesses in whether it's through recognising what their legal structure actually is um, and facilitating them especially with those that DGR status or some tax benefits but also at least in the sphere of modern slavery with it being such a new legislation you know like introduced in 2019 that's that's baby status in the legal world but Often, you know, with the guidance that the government has out there on how to comply as a business, it's very vague. And it makes so much sense because these businesses are coming in and being like, oh, my gosh, there's so much to do. I don't know where to start. They try and look to the government for some guidance. And they're like, "Ah, you know, (laughs) we'll just give you a notice when you're non-compliant. And um, there should be, especially in a sphere like modern slavery where you're having an impact on human rights – The government should be empowering businesses to be like yeah you should care about this rather than as great as it is that it's coming from consumers if the government really cares about it then they should be propelling it themselves this is such an
0: expansive interesting conversation we've got time for one last question and uh, this one's for the listeners that are interested in moving into this space themselves what is the future looking like in this field Where are some of the opportunities? What would you say to another young person that's wanting to enter and doesn't know how?
3: I can start us off. So firstly, I think the way that I got started and perhaps a lot of people got started was by volunteering and sort of having that foot in the door that way and understanding what social impact work actually looks like. I've since had like relative concerns with that because I think young people really need to be valued for their time and expecting people to volunteer really really prioritizes a certain group of people who can afford to volunteer so I definitely think that if you can't afford to volunteer that there are other ways to also get involved like definitely like graduate positions or simply just like messaging someone on LinkedIn or Instagram or like even Facebook now because we are so connected have that coffee with someone people are really interested in getting to know this next generation of change makers that are coming up so my two pieces of advice would be if you can volunteer volunteering is great certainly at Oak Tree we have so many volunteer positions open up all the time you can just visit our website at oaktree.org and we're completely volunteer run um, in the sense that everyone from our director of finance to our director of international programs volunteers some time out of their week to do it so in that sense that's really easy but if you can't volunteer reach out to people have those coffees um, and I think people will be surprised at how willing
4: people are to connect. Yeah. I couldn't agree more I've um, started like a volunteer at Taboo and now even though I work as a lawyer i um they've let me do a day a week with taboo because they recognize the value in the work that they're doing and the value of being a volunteer and, and gaining that experience in a different sphere to what i would if i would just stayed in the legal sphere so i 100 percent agree that people need to just get out there and and yeah have take someone for a coffee if you like what they're doing i think something that we really often do as young people is ex- kind of feel overwhelmed that we're supposed to know about everything and what every Mm. avenue is and you know if you'd asked me at the beginning of this year I actually would have no idea what modern slavery was but just by having conversations with people and being open and willing to learn that's how I've been able to get into this sphere and that's how I got involved with taboo so don't shut yourself off at any point and don't feel that you don't have the um I guess standing to be able to come into these spaces everyone's very welcoming (laughs) yeah and at the
3: very least you meet some really cool people I'm pretty sure Izzy and I just met because I messaged on Facebook maybe after I saw a post about taboo. this was like three four years ago now which is crazy I
2: can't believe we haven't even talked
3: about this yet (laughs) Um, but absolutely like I just saw some yeah two girls doing some incredible things and I just wanted to see how I could support and just reaching out to them now
2: Absolutely and I agree we we spent our first year on Taboo literally coffee after coffee with different people um in different sectors to um to pick their brains and learn from their own experiences and with that comes obviously the confidence to reach out but what we found very quickly is that um people in these spaces are in these spaces because they're very passionate about them and if they're passionate about them they're gonna want to share that that their knowledge and their their passion and um and their wisdom with the people who are going to kind of take on that baton and continue the fight against whatever it is yeah and in terms of taboo we uh, we really exist and have always existed um as a very community based um organization and that community is um, Australia wide we have incredible ambassadors and um, we call anyone who vol- volunteers for Taboo by say having hosting a, um, an event at their school or a cupcake run or anything a promotional event they're all our ambassadors because they all have such incredible um, influence over the people around them and I think that's something that lots of people don't realise until they host an event or something that people are always watching you. (laughs) Like no matter who you are, like you have influence over at least – a handful of people and that can have a real um, ripple effect and I think social media has really exemplified all of that. So yeah, advocating against, um, well, for the fight against period poverty is particularly what we're all about Um, and that has so many aspects of like gender equality, general poverty, there's a lot of factors there to grip onto if you're particularly passionate about any of that.
0: Awesome. What a fantastic place to end on. As I said at the beginning, I really admire what you're all doing and it's been a pleasure today. Thank
2: Thanks you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having
1: yeah. us. So that was an incredible conversation that you had, Theo. Uh, what, what was your main takeaway from that? Obviously, there were so many interesting points.
0: Yeah I think I was most excited to see the resonances that everyone had in each other's work. I thought it was particularly interesting to really grapple with this word poverty and critically consider how we commonly
1: understand it. How about you? What did you take away? Well I think for me the, the whole idea of the fact that you know small baby steps you can take can lead to big outcomes and so that act of reaching out to to someone you're inspired by and and, you know going and having coffee or or if you're like me and and don't drink coffee you have hot chocolate (laughs) but you know actually going out and and having those conversations and yeah i agree inspiring
0: thank you for joining millie and i from the global shapers adelaide hub on our shaping futures podcast You can find out more about the Global Shapers on our website, which is linked in the show notes. Make sure to follow the Global Shapers Adelaide on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn to see how you can get involved with our local and global causes. And finally, we'd like to thank the City of Adelaide for supporting us in creating this project.